Hello, hello, everybody. We can take your seats. Take your seats. No slow clap. No. Ha! Sad dude. Ha! Sad dude. Sweet. If. Sad dude. Cool grandpa. I'm a cool grandpa. Hip grandpa. I'm hip and cool, my friends, my brothers. Uh, sweet. <laughs> so, who enjoyed their spring break? Okay, who di didn't go on a mission trip? Enjoyed your spring break? Ah, sweet. All right, and uh, who knows what yesterday was? Easter. <laughs> it was Brooke's birthday. It was also kind of Jesus's birthday because he like rose, you know. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So yesterday was Easter. Um, Easter is a really cool holiday. I really enjoy it um, because of what it stands for. It does not stand for Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and chocolate. And I could talk for 35 minutes. I could talk. Those are good. I could talk for the whole time about how I don't like it, but I won't do that to you guys. Not today. Um, but we are going to talk about Easter, and specifically, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Okay? So we've been reading out of 1 Corinthians. Uh, today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Um, specifically, we're only going to look at a portion of it uh, because Paul takes the whole chapter to talk about the resurrection, and we don't want to read the whole chapter because it's very long. Uh, but just to give a backup of what's going on, uh, the, obviously the church has a bunch of problems. Um, this specific issue that Paul is addressing is the fact that they are saying that there is going to be no resurrection of the dead. And what that really means, it's kind of what Jordan talked about a few weeks ago. They're like YOLO, right? You only live once, do whatever you want. There's not going to be an afterlife, so why not do whatever you want? And so Paul's addressing this issue. And so what we're going to look, look at is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. And so it's up here. Uh, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if you're like me, the first time you see this, you're like, that sounds, there's some cool stuff in there, but I don't really know what's going on. Um, I had to break it down because it was like, this is a lot of stuff. And so I did that for you guys. We're just going to follow Paul's train of thought what he's saying. And so the first thing he says in verse 13 is that if Christ has not been raised, then we will not be raised from the dead. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then everything we do ministry-wise is useless. So if Christ wasn't raised, this is useless, Chi Alpha. Uh, verse 14, again, he says if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is useless. Verse 15, if Christ has not been raised, we are false witnesses or liars about God. Um, verse 17, if he's not been raised, then we're still in our sins. If he's not been raised, verse 18, then everyone who's died in Christ is lost. And verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, then we're to be pitied, most of all people. So, essentially, what Paul is saying through all of this is that without the resurrection, Christianity, everything about it does not matter, right? At essence, 
everything is based around the, the resurrection. And so we're going to read a cool quote. E. Stanley Jones says something somewhat contradictory to that, but it'll make sense. And this is what he says. He says, there are four pillars upon which Christ's gospel rests. His life, his cross, his resurrection, and his coming into the lives of men, Pentecost. The gospel rests upon all four. Take any one away and you have a crippled gospel, a gospel insufficient to meet human need. Some lay the chief emphasis, emphasis upon his life, others upon his death, others upon his resurrection, and others still upon his coming into the souls of men at Pentecost. But when one pillar is heightened by emphasis and the others lowered by lack of emphasis, the temple of Christianity built upon them leans threateningly or worse still, topples into ruin. So I like what he's saying. He's essentially just saying that if you, um, if you pick one thing about one aspect about Christianity and you elevate it above everything else, you get a crooked Christianity. Right, that may topple one day, and it's not going to suffice. It's not going to hold up in the end. Um, and so it's cool because you could—I mean, you could essentially go through every one of these, and you could be like, "Oh well, if Jesus never lived, then we wouldn't have Christianity," and you'd be right. And you say, "Well, if Jesus didn't die, then Christianity wouldn't be what it is," and you're right. And you could say that about the resurrection. You could say that about Pentecost. You could say that about anything, really. You could say that, and and it would be true, right? And so East Stanley Jones says, "Don't elevate them because you mess it up." So then what do we do with the verse that Paul, Paul was writing about? Because he seems to be <laughs> saying that everything is dependent on, oops, text message. But uh, your sister. But um, <laughs> no, Heather's sister. Uh, but yeah, so what ends up happening is um, he, he talks about this and he says, like, this is, this is a c- central part, right? And so... We know that the resurrection is a big deal. We, we've heard about it. There's a whole day like devoted to it. But what is the big deal about the resurrection, right? What is the big deal? Why does it affect you and me? Uh, and so many of you guys know that I'm from Houston. Yeah. Sta- everyone on staff is from Texas. Huh, yeah. But uh, Houston's a really cool place. Some of you guys may get to go within a year from now. Less than a year. But... Houston's a really cool place, bunch of cool stuff, but like um like every big city, there's there's obviously stuff that goes on that's that's pretty dark, pretty messed up. And something about Houston that is really sad, a statistic okay, this is crazy. I'm gonna turn this off. Um something crazy about this is that that one of the statistics for Houston is that it is it is the largest hub in America for sex trafficking of children. They all come from Mexico. That's the first city they hit. And then they go to the rest of the country. And it's got the most traffic of children specifically, right? And so I went on a mission trip um, in 2012, my freshman year of college, to a place called Home of Hope, kind of similar to what Atlanta Dream Center is. But this is specifically about rescuing little girls. And they give them a place to live. It's this, like, hidden house, uh, this property where no one is able to find it. Um, they do a really good job. But they keep them there until they're 18, and they give them a chance to live a normal life. And I remember the first time I saw it, uh, or I went there, and I was like, wait a second, they only get to live there until they're 18? Because that means that they were even younger when they first got into the place, right? And I remember the lady telling us there that the average age of those girls coming in is 13 years old, getting into the sex trafficking. And that if they don't get out of it, that they usually die within seven years. And so... Um, 
I mean, I remember hearing that and thinking about it, and the only other experience I've ever had with that in Houston was uh, in high school. I got to go on a ride-along with my neighbor. He's two doors down. He was a cop. And if you know what a ride-along is, you just get to sit in the front seat of the cop car and go with them for their whole day of work. I got a baton. It was really cool. He said, you're going to beat people up if they, <laughs> if they come at me. And I was like, all right, well, uh, I can't do much good, but hopefully. Um, but I remember him, he, we were driving um, into town. He worked in the third ward, if, if you know that. And if, you, if any of you know about that, it's a really hard part of town, probably the hardest part. And on the way there, he points out a warehouse. He says, you see that warehouse right there? I was like, yeah, I, I drive past that every day on my way to work. And he says, that warehouse right there, a few years ago, we busted it, and it used to be a prostitution ring. I was like, oh, dang, you know. And he said that when his squad and them, when they went in and busted it, they found a room that had children prostitute in it. And he, and he talked about how they were, like, girls that were younger than his own daughters at the time. He said that, were, that when, when him and his squad came out, that, that they couldn't sleep that night. They were sick to their stomachs. And they could not believe some of the things that happened that they saw in there. And I remember asking him, because I was like, hey, um, you know, is this like the only time you've ever you know, had to do this? And he's like, no. We've seen it uh, many times um, from, from hearing stories from other guys. And he said that there was actually someone in his squad that had told him that one time they had went into a prostitution ring and they had found a man in the act of abusing an 18-month-old little girl. And even to this day, I still, that's six years ago, almost seven, I still can't wrap my mind around how someone could do something like that. And I know you guys in Atlanta, y'all saw that video. Heather told me about the video y'all watched, and she said it was, it was just incredibly hard to watch. And that, that I know that, that last night they do it. I know Katie yelled at it last year, and you s they said it was, it's incredible to see the things when you work with these people. But this isn't just something that happens in Houston, right? It happened in Atlanta. Bo talked about it two weeks ago. It happens everywhere, right? The, the, the heinous acts that these people do, right? And, and the suffering that they cause these little girls. And this isn't the only form of suffering, right? What about what happened with Brussels recently? You guys saw that? The terrorist bombing, 31 people died, 270 people injured. And I know the first thought I had was like, man, some of those people lost their, their parents. Some of those people lost their kids. And I can't imagine what they're going through right now. It's been less than a week. I can't imagine how much hurt and suffering they're feeling right now, right? And we see things like this. We hear stories like this, and people always want to ask, God, how, how are you good if there is so much evil in the world? Lord, how can you allow suffering and call yourself a good God, right? And we've all asked this question. Everyone in this room, Christian, non-Christian, I promise every one of you have asked this question. You may not have asked it in a critical spirit, but you've asked it, right? Someone's asked you the question. You, you can't give them an answer off the spot if you've never thought about it, so you have to ask yourself that question. Everyone's, and, and, and no one's exempt from suffering, right? We've had people who have died far too young that we were close to. We've had family members that have committed suicide that we were close to. We've had friends that have died in car crashes, right? We've seen genocides in our lifetime, and we've seen it in the past, I mean, suffering happens on, on a personal level, right? We get stabbed in the back by someone, or we have someone talk about us behind our back, and we find out later, or someone like some stranger who hit my car and then drove off without a note, right? Suffering happens to every one of us, and it happens in so many forms. And we see suffering in the Bible. People question, how could God flood the world and kill everyone but eight people? 
right? How could God wipe off entire nations off the planet? How is Jesus good if not every single person got to get a chance to be healed because he had so he was limited with time? How is Jesus good if he couldn't heal everyone, right? And we ask these questions, and they're very real questions, right? Jesus, how can suffering exist and you call yourself good? And what does the resurrection have anything to do with this, right? What does the resurrection have anything to do with suffering? I think it's, I think the resurrection is the only answer to suffering, the only lasting answer, but we're going to talk about that. But to understand how the resurrection can be the answer to this, we have to understand the resurrection and what it is, right? And so we look back at what Paul says. He says that the resurrection, you know, it's like the underlying <laughs> thing in this passage, and ultimately it's the underlying concept of the entire New Testament. Really what it is is the resurrection is the central hinge of Christianity. And so what that means is that everyone before the resurrection was putting their hope into this. They may not have known what it was, but they were putting their hope into it, right? And everyone from this moment, future, and past looks back to the moment when Jesus arose from the dead. That's where we get our victory, right? And so to understand the resurrection, I think it's really cool. This guy's guy, who, Micah, I know you like to talk to people. Jordan, Devin, you like to talk to people. Anyone who wants to have a conversation with a Christian or a non-Christian alike, I encourage you to ask this question. It's one of my favorite things to do because it's a great question starter. does not matter if you're a Christian or not because everyone has heard some bit of the gospel. They know a little bit about Christianity if they live in America, right? So go up to them and ask them this question. You say, right, you, you've heard of Christianity? Yes, right? So you've heard of the gospel. The gospel means the good news. So what is the good news? It's a great question to ask someone. What is the good news? And nine times out of ten, unless they're Bible scholars, like some of you guys are, but if you ask them what it is, they're going to say, oh, that Jesus died for me. And my response is always, no, that's terrible news. That's awful. If someone called me right now and said, Sean, your little brother Ryan just died, I'm not going to be jumping up and down. I'm going to be devastated, right? That is terrible news that someone died. And then they're always like, oh, no, uh, I mean, what I meant to say was that he rose. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. See, the good news isn't that Jesus died for us. It's that Jesus died and then rose again. You see, the cross without the resurrection would have meant that Jesus was only a martyr for his, for his own good convictions. The cross without the resurrection would have meant defeat. Ultimately, the cross without the resurrection is just pointless. The cross was needed, yes, but so is the resurrection. And so, does that make sense to everyone? Okay, I only heard like six yeses, so I'm going to make this super clear. Who, who wants $200? Okay, not everyone raised their hand. Who wants $200? Okay, I will give this $200 to the first person who can prove to me that the resurrection never happened. In fact, I'll keep this offer up until I die. You come find me before I die, and you give me proof that the resurrection never happened, and I will gladly give you this $200. I wish I had more money to offer. 
but I don't because I'm a missionary. But uh, you ask why why I'm offering this money? Sa, <laughs> dude. Uh, the reason why, simply put, because if you can disprove that the resurrection happened, you defeat Christianity. It's done with. It's over. And it's funny because um, I, when, I was, when I was preparing for this, I wanted to go one way. I'm really glad I didn't because it would have just been apologetics. Like six of y'all would have enjoyed that. Micah, yeah. But uh, one thing is funny is that there are some really, really dumb arguments against the, the resurrection. Christianity as a whole, but specifically the resurrection. And the reason why people argue this so much is because they realize that this is the one point that if you can prove it wrong, you defeat everything of Christianity, right? And so there's some really dumb things out there that people say, but I can't go into that. Um, but speaking of the, the history of people making dumb arguments and speaking of history, where are my history buffs? Where are my history lovers? Sweet. So who in this room has heard of Julius Caesar invading Britain in 55 BC? Did you really? You've heard of that? Okay, well, one person in this room heard that story. So I'll tell you. What happened was in 56 BC, Julius Caesar, the emperor of Rome, tried to invade Britain, totally failed, came back a year later, took over all of Britain, put in his own, like, king so that he could be ruled under Right, and so he was like, look at me, I'm a really cool emperor. Um, and so, <laughs> the, the, the reason I bring this up, why is it, I mean, two of y'all in this room seem to have known about this, the rest of y'all didn't. I'm sure every one of you trusts me that this is actually a historical fact. I would, I would probably be right in saying that. So why does no one ever argue whether Julius Caesar invaded Rome, but everyone tries to argue whether the resurrection happened? Because, in all honesty, whether Julius Caesar invaded Rome or not, or Britain or not, does not affect my life today or your life. has no effect whatsoever. But if the resurrection did happen, then it does affect your life. If the resurrection happened, then you have to change according to it. That means that everything that Jesus said was true. He talked about how he was going to rise, and if he did, then what he said was true. Guys, I'm not making this up. This isn't the Bible. The Bible was an amazing book. Who in here has a Bible? It is a library. Who, okay, if you didn't raise your hand, if you don't have a Bible, please, please, please come find someone on staff or your small group leader, and we will be happy to get you a Bible. I know that there's like 30 in Jordan's closet right now. We would be more than glad to get you a Bible. The reason is <laughs> Jordan wants to get rid of them. They take up, not, not get rid of them, get rid of them in a good way. But um, the Bible is really cool. It tells us a lot about ourselves. It tells us about God. Um, it's the primary source to talking about. I, I, think it's, I think it tells us more about ourselves than any, any psychologist ever could. And one thing the Bible tells us is that we are going to be resurrected one day. That's really cool. But if you guys are like me, when I heard this for the first time, I was like, yeah, that's cool, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> it sounds cool. I mean, Jesus was resurrected, so I guess it's a good thing. <laughs> um, and that's okay if you don't understand that. That's what we're talking about, right? That's what we're talking about today. Um, so before we talk about what the Bible has to say about that, I want to make one thing clear. 
There has only ever been one person in all of history who's ever been resurrected. Now, church kids, Bible scholars, before you pick up your stones and throw them at me, let me explain, right? You guys are probably thinking of Lazarus or the woman of Nain's son or the guy who fell asleep during Paul's teaching and fell out the window and then he went down and prayed for him to get back up and he got back up, right? You guys are probably thinking about those guys. Those guys weren't resurrected. They were resuscitated. And I'm not, don't think I'm making light of the miracle that happened. Those, those to me are some of the most beautiful miracles. These men that were dead that are now alive again. But the reason they were resuscitated is because they died again. They didn't live on, right? Lazarus raised, there's church, his, some church historians think that Lazarus didn't smile for the rest of his life. I don't know if that's true, but, right, he was, he was raised again, but he died again. But what we have to understand is that when Jesus rose again, he didn't die again. He went on to something new, something totally different. And the Bible tells us that that's going to happen for me and you too, right? And so here's some Bible verses. I'm going to put them up. A bunch of Bible verses just talking about how we're going to be resurrected. So Daniel 12, 2 talks about how everyone will awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us. Acts 24, 15, both the righteous and the wicked will be raised. Second um, Corinthians 5, 1, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God. It's John 5, 28, 29, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And so the Bible tells us we're going to be resurrected. A lot of people who have never heard this before, myself included when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, well, that's cool. We're going to be resurrected. We're just going to be a bunch of disembodied spirits floating around in heaven one day, right? A bunch of ghosts. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that we're going to have a bodily resurrection, flesh and bone, right? And so here's verses that tell us that. This is Revelations 20, 11, 13, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. I'll actually explain this one. It says the dead will be raised imperishable. That word imperishable, what it means is that that our bodies will be raised and they will be unable to be destroyed. They will not age. They will not perish, right? These are going to be flesh and bone. Like I could walk up and touch Nate, but it's going to be of a different kind. We see that with Jesus when he came back from the dead, right? It was a different type of body that will not be destroyed. Romans 8.28 says that we wait for the redemption of our bodies eagerly. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.41 40, 41, we're going to have heavenly bodies that are different than the earthly bodies. I mean, guys, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 5, it says, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. I don't want to argue with that. That is overtly clear to me that (laughs) we're not going to be spirits. We're going to have flesh and bone bodies. Okay? And, And not just Christians, not just those who believe. Everyone. The Bible tells us that. They were up there, but I'm going to put them up again. Right? Um, oops. John five twenty eight to 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And Acts twenty four fifteen says, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Everyone's going to get a new body. Everyone is going to get a new body. So again, what, what does this have to do with your life right now? What does this have to do with my life at this moment? What, how does 
Jesus being resurrected and you getting a resurrected body one day have any effect on you as a college student right now? And how does this remotely answer the question of suffering? And to understand that, one more thing we have to understand before that is why Jesus was raised. There are three reasons I'm going to give you. Two of them, we're just going to go through real quick. The third one is where I really feel that, that this is where we get our answer, right? Where, how the resurrection answers suffering and the goodness of God. So the first reason why Jesus was raised was that to reverse the verdict of the human court. Now, the Pharisees, the men who, who condemned Jesus, they said that he was too bad to live. So they killed him. And God said, he's too good to rot. So he raised him. Right? It was an injustice that Jesus died. He did no wrong, yet was killed as if he did. And so God reversed that. Right? The second reason why Jesus was raised was to prove that the sacrifice was accepted. This meant, Jesus raising meant that no one would ever have to suffer, or he would never have to suffer again for sins. Right? It meant that his blood was sufficient to cover all sins. And the third reason, and the reason I think we find our answer in, is that Jesus rose so that we could be raised also. The Bible says he was our forerunner. We've all asked the question, we've all been asked the question before. We've all seen people who've asked the questions, though we may not have heard it from them directly, right? Where they say, God, how, how are you good if my little cousin died when he was six from cancer, right? God, how, are, how could you say you love me if I'm going through so much junk in my life and you don't even seem to care, right? We hear these answers, or we hear these, these, these questions. We have these questions ourselves sometimes. It's okay to have these questions too, guys. It's okay. But the, when you look at the Bible and you look for an answer, the only answer the Bible seems to give is that we will get a full answer when we stand before God in the resurrection. Now, if you're like me, I don't like that because I like specific, s concrete answers. And I'm like, Jesus, why couldn't you just tell me why the bad things happened, right? I, I want to know. I don't want to wait. Right, but that's not how G that's not how God operates. The Bible says in Isaiah fifty-five, uh, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And he says again in Genesis twenty five eighteen, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not God do right? Sure, he's God. I mean he's supposed to. And God is a God who will uphold justice, but he upholds it his way, not our way. And sometimes we as humankind, not sometimes, most of the time, we're arrogant, we think we know better than God. And so we say, God, you haven't given me an answer quick enough. I'm taking matters into my own hand. Right? And what happens is that someone gets hurt, and their response is either to hurt someone back or to walk away. I've known people who've walked away. I've known people who tried to hurt me back. We see it. And what ends up happening is that they start off at a point where they say, I've been hurt. God, how are you good? You haven't given me an answer. I'm taking matters into my own hand. And when they do that, they cause the other person to suffer. And that person goes, God, 
How could you be good? I'm not getting an answer. I'm taking matters into my own hand. And you start getting this repetition where people are unwilling to wait, unwilling to, to trust God, and they try and take matters into their own hands. And I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest, outside of the resurrection, there is not one ounce of hope that any suffering and any hurt and any pain will ever be righted. There's not. Not long-term, temporarily, sure, but not long-term. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Outside of the resurrection, there will not be one ounce of hope for any writing of the wrongs that you've gone through, any writings that other people have gone through, right? There's some people that haven't suffered much, but they've seen suffering, and it's an injustice to them. And it's only found in the resurrection. And so we, we always ask these questions, and, and we want God to answer, but he doesn't, and he says, I'll answer you then, right? Not now. Sometimes God does give us an answer. I've heard of people who say, God, why did my daughter die? And he answered them, but most of the time he doesn't, right? He says, I'll answer then, but not now. And what we say to this is that revelation precedes explanation. Or more simply put, God always asks us to do before he explains. God always asks us to do before he explains. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see it from Abraham in uh, in, uh, Genesis 12. God says, leave your hometown. And then in Genesis 15, he says, okay, here's the covenant. Here's the promise I've made to you. He explains after Abraham did. Right? We see it with the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 says, here are the gifts. Use them. 1 Corinthians 14 says, okay, now here's how you use them properly. Right? Do I'll explain later. And that's how God operates. And the reason why God operates like this is because it's the only way to build character. It's the only way he can know if we trust him. And you see, Jesus calls us his bride, but he wants us to be a bride that he'll want to live with forever. You don't, you don't want to marry someone you don't want to be with, right? Jesus wants to marry us, and he wants to be with us, and not just for a short time, but forever. That's what Jesus desires for us. And, and yes, evil is, is very real. Suffering is very, very tangible to many of us. Many of us in this room have been through, through some things that would make my stomach upset legitimately, right? But what God is saying is, will you trust me despite what's going on around you? And when you are willing to trust, you realize that you have, you, your resurrection life Right? We're all going to have resurrection life. That doesn't start when you die. Your resurrection life starts when you give your life to Jesus. That's when your resurrection life starts. And so I want to call the band back up. And as they're coming up, I just want to explain that. I want us to understand that. This is where, this is where I, I believe God is saying, yes, suffering is real, but here's my answer, right? And so, you guys remember Acts 24, uh, 15? I've said it like four times because I think it's a really cool verse. But he says that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That means everyone. I said it earlier. That means everyone. That means Adolf Hitler is going to stand before God one day with a resurrected body. Mussolini, 
Donald Trump, Obama, your professors, your parents, you, me, every one of us will stand with a new body before God, and we're going to have things accounted to us. I, I don't pretend to act like I know what God's answer is going to be. I don't. He may stand there and you say, God, why did this happen? He says, this happened because of this, this, and this. Or you may say, God, why did, you, why did this happen? He said, son, I'm glad you trusted me. I'm not giving you an answer. But all I know is that whatever God says in response will be enough. And there's going to be another person who stands before Jesus one day, and his name is Judas Iscariot. And the man who betrayed Jesus. And there's a verse in the Bible about Judas that, that Jesus says about him that for years it has been so uncomfortable to me, so absolutely uncomfortable. Um, and what, what it says, sorry, let me get this, Katie. You can take your thing. Um, what it says here in Matthew 26, it says, Jesus says, Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. That messed me up. I said, God, I said, Jesus, how could, how could you say that to someone? That's a low blow. I mean, yeah, he messed up, and he messed up bad, but that's really low. But then Acts 24, 15 says that everyone will get a new body. And 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says that that body will never be destroyed. And so what you realize is that Judas, the reason Jesus said this is because he realized that Judas was now going to get a body that would be thrown into hell and would never be destroyed, an eternal body. And our hearts should bleed for people like that, right? For people who are unwilling to cut ties with their selfish lives, people who are going to get a new body one day but will not be able to enjoy it in the presence of Jesus, A lot of people think that, that Christianity is escapism. When they, when they say that, what, they, what they're talking about is this, the resurrection, right? They say, ah, Christianity is just a bunch of people who are like, ah, whatever, I'm, I'm going to be in heaven one day, so whatever with the world. YOLO, right? A, a religious YOLO. But if, Christ, if the resurrection was escapism, then what we would do is we would say, well, I got hurt or I see hurt. But I'm just going to try and push it off to the side, ignore it as much as I can, and I'll, they'll get what they deserve one day, and I'll get what I deserve. That's escapism, but that's not the true hope of the resurrection. The true hope of the resurrection empowers us to forgive and to fight for people. The true hope of the resurrection empowers us to forgive and then to fight for people. Right? Sometimes we get hurt by people, and we say, God, I don't understand it. And he may never give you an answer. You may never know why you got hurt. But he says, are you willing to forgive and then fight for that person? Right? Or we see people who do some of the most heinous acts in the world. They didn't do it to us, but they did it to someone else. And we're not willing to forgive them. But God says, in the hope of the resurrection, you can forgive that person and fight for them. Because I don't want a Judas. I don't want another Judas. God says he, does, he wishes that none would perish. And one day, you'll stand before God in heaven. And the people you fought for will stand there with him too. Right? And heaven, 
Heaven is not a place where you get your angel wings, where you sit on the edge of the cloud and you look over at the world below and you go fishing with your grandpa. I'm sorry if that's what you've been told. That's not what the Bible says heaven is. This is what the Bible says heaven is. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying from the throne, Look, God's dwelling place is now among men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We'll stand there with Jesus, and there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. We'll stand there with Jesus, and we'll be able to look like the angels who sing day and night, right? And we'll say, he is worth more than all of that that I went through. And putting my hope in him now was worth more than what I went through then. Right? Jesus wants us to be his bride. But that can't happen when you die. That has to happen now. Right? You, be, you are prepared as a bride before you're presented as a bride. Jesus asks us to do before he explains because that's the only way we can be that. And we choose to put our hope in the resurrection we choose to put our hope in a God who is bigger than suffering, who will account for suffering. He's the judge of all the earth, right? And when we choose to do that despite not knowing, you've started re living your resurrection life then. And so because the resurrection is a celebration, it's not a sad thing. It's joyful, right? I asked the band to play just some, some celebratory songs, some, some uplifting songs. Because that's what it is. It's a celebration. It's joy. It's restoration. The resurrection is restoration. And so feel free, guys. Celebrate in whatever way you do. Throw your hands up. Jump up and down. Dance around. I don't care. King David danced, and he was accredited as a man after God's own heart. So dancing is not dumb. Celebrate, because that's what the resurrection is. And if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't, like Matt, said, Jesus, I've given my life to you, then do it and celebrate with everyone else. So we're going to pray. Jesus, we love you, God. I pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us, God. Don't let it leave in this room, God, but let it go with us, Jesus. Don't leave it here at this room, but let it go with us, Jesus. Let us be empowered to forgive when we are hurt, to forgive when we see people hurt, to forgive when we feel it's an injustice. And God, let us be willing to fight for those people, to fight for the ones who have caused so much wrong, God, so that one day they can